Welcome to Practically Political. I'm Dave Spencer, and today we have a very special guest, Rachel Snyderman. Yes, and I'm Carrie Sheffield, and we're excited to have you, and we're excited to have Rachel Snyderman. Rachel is a Director of Economic Policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center. Welcome to Practically Political, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here with you both. So, Rachel, I'm, I'm sure over the last few weeks, you probably didn't get much sleep because of all of the drama that was happening. And BPC, you guys were at the forefront of producing a lot of the analysis of these projections and things that were, uh, you know, all these different plans that were throwing back and forth with the debt ceiling. Can you walk us through exactly what passed? What do you guys think about it? Are you supportive of it? Uh, I know on the conservative side, there were some who felt like it really didn't go far enough. Um, and I understand their concerns, but I also think that anything they got was an extraction from Joe Biden because President Biden didn't want to give an inch. Yeah, so I think it's, you know, that's a it's a really um, as we kind of reflect on the process over the past few months, I think that this shows how, you know, that compromise can be messy and bipartisanship is hard. But in a time of divided government, um, I think that the bill that was passed and signed by President Biden um, last week just really signifies that you know even in a time of divided government both sides of the aisle can come together to find a compromise and a solution um and and not worry about the default of the united states um and the bar the bipartisan policy center since 2011 has really been an objective voice um trying to help policymakers and the public make sense of what the debt limit is. And, you know, in these times where we've seen kind of increased rhetoric and politicization surrounding how to deal with the debt limit, we have um, provided that analysis as to when the United States could find itself in a position where they're unable to make good on their obligations. And so I think that it's important when we look at the outcome of the negotiations over the past weeks and months, the bill that was passed, the Fiscal Responsibility Act, first and foremost, it suspends the debt limit until uh, through January 1st of 2025. So we don't need to worry about the U.S. defaulting on its financial obligations and its debt. Um, you know, we've, we've kicked that can now down the road until January of 2025 um, and beyond. Uh, but um, there are other provisions in the bill that I think have drawn a lot of attention, um, and they really do reflect the that the president was able to push many of his policies from from his budget, such as support for um, veterans affairs, um, and that Republicans also were able to incorporate many of their policy priorities, such as um, increasing some of the work requirements and some um, public assistance programs. And so I think that, you know, this does showcase that we are in a time where both parties recognize we need to enact some sort of fiscal restraint. We saw that in the bill um, reflected in some of the non-defense discretionary caps that have been implemented. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that this also just showcases, too, that the budget process itself is broken. And this is really an opportunity where we need to really rethink how we go about the annual appropriations process without really using the debt limit as the the tool to really um, take hostage you know, these negotiations. Because I don't think that is a productive use of anyone's time nor taxpayer resources and, um, you know, our global reputation. Well, I think, Rachel, you hit the nail on the head when you said kicking the can down the road, because I think we need to point out, first of all, a couple of side points that using the debt limit as leverage, I think, is deplorable. This is the second time that a newly uh, emboldened House majority has done it. 
the Democrats have never done it. They raised it three times under President Trump, whose $8 trillion four-year uh, debt explosion was by far the greatest of any president. So you don't address the spending problem by bouncing your credit card check, uh, which is essentially what we're doing after you spent the money. But having said that, the bottom line is, as you say, non-discretionary, non-defense discretionary spending is less than $750 billion out of a $6. trillion budget. So until we actually address, as Jesse James says, where the money is, uh, we're not going to deal with this problem. And it's kicking the can down the road and it's cowardice on both sides. And I think both President Trump and Pres uh, President Biden deserve blame for not taking on the fact that until we deal with entitlements, we're not going to stop exploding our debt. But having said that, I think the deal was actually fair on both sides. I think that Biden preserved what he wanted, mm -hmm. uh, mostly uh, in terms of uh, his uh, inflation, uh, inflation Reduction Act and a lot of his priorities, I think it was, oh, so he won on, on, on the deal, but the Republicans won because there was no uh, talk of even increasing revenue, you know, dealing with that awful tax cut of 2017, which again is the worst piece of legislation I've ever seen. Kerry's uh, heard me say that many, many times. But uh, so until we also deal with the revenue side, and frankly, I know this is hard for people to hear, but middle-class people benefit from social security middle-class people are going to have to pay more taxes because the wealthy can only pay so much so uh, that's really my thoughts on it uh, yes we have a deal but the problem is going to only going to get worse so it's still frustrating and i think your point i mean you're, you're you hit the nail on the head i think it we do have to have those tough conversations surrounding social security and medicare and i think that you know what's missing from the conversation is that the longer we wait to address our entitlement programs, um, we're just making the programs worse, the individuals who benefit from them worse off. We're, we're making the solutions to those programs more difficult, more costly as the years drag on. And so I think that a the decision to not touch those benefit programs is a decision to essentially cut them um, unless we really get serious about bipartisan solutions to address them in the near term so that they're there for the current generation and the next. You know, that's a really good point. And the Wall Street Journal ran a great op-ed with, with basically that headline. It, said, it called it the Biden-Trump Social Security cut because both are the front runners now for their party. And they said both of them are saying they don't want to touch Social Security. But on the current projections, there will be an automatic cliff of a 23% cut. So it's already baked into the cake. So they're basically supporting a very drastic cut that could be smooth and um, much less drastic if they were actually showing some courage. So uh, I'm grateful that you guys are sounding the alarm on this, but I want to ask you a question on the, you mentioned the, um, the welfare work requirements. My understanding is that there were enough carve outs for, you know, veterans, homeless people, and like there's, you know, tick, tick, tick the list that in actuality analysis showed that it actually wouldn't, it was a wash and in fact might even actually have a little bit more payments uh, to people. Is that correct? Yeah, so we're seeing estimates from the Congressional Budget Office that um, say that upwards of 80,000 um, additional individuals or about $2 billion um, additional um, spending for the program will will be necessary um, you know, to meet these additional um, individuals who qualify now for for the program. So we're really looking at the, the fact that um, the work requirements did increase over uh, gradually over time from age 49 to 54. But what's important is that it actually expanded eligibility, removed work requirements for um, 
particular segment of individuals, so veterans, um, people experiencing homelessness, and um, those who are aging out of the foster care system. And so, right on net, we're actually seeing preliminary estimates uh, that that show that these these new laws will actually expand access to some of these programs, such as um, SNAP. Well, as I understand it, uh, it was it was mostly focused on so-called SNAP, the Supplementary Nutritional Assistance Program. And it didn't really involve welfare. I think these these requirements to work programs have been proved to have very marginal effect at, at best. And I'd be curious to get Rachel's thought on that. But I haven't seen any evidence that that they actually imp, uh, increase people's work. I think they just increase the stress level and they, pre they prevent people from getting benefits. I believe most people, there's always going to be that 5 to 10% that fall through the cracks. But most people want to have a job. They enjoy the dignity of work. And they're not sitting around living high on the hog on, you know, $300 a week. This is a fallacy that you hear from a lot of the MAGA crowd. So, uh, and I also think that uh, another thing I don't understand is this going after the IRS where Chuck Grassley, and I despise him for saying this, saying that IRS is going to be kicking down small businesses doors with AR-15s. Well, only 5% of the IRS are even allowed to carry guns. And he knows darn well that it's uh, his wealthy constituents that are worried because they might have to actually pay more in taxes and same with corporations. So uh, I would be curious to hear your thoughts on that, because it seems to me that every dollar we spend on the IRS will yield three or four more dollars. Yeah, I, I mean, I will say I was disappointed to see the IRS as one of the negotiating points, but again, I was not surprised. Um, I think that the outcome reflected, you know, again, the art of compromise. Um, and I, because I do think that, right, the, the, the agency has been, has faced chronic underfunding and taxpayer services are vital to not only ensure that Americans know where their dollars are going, um, but that exactly that, that people pay their fair share in taxes. Um, and that, uh, and so I, I do think that, you know, as a nation, we are, Stressed over to overcome our tax gap, kind of the difference between what um, what is collected in tax revenues versus what folks owe, and and so I do think that um, you know the IRS came out just a few months ago with their strategic plan for how they were going to implement this eighty billion dollar investment um, that they received from the Inflation Reduction Act last year. Um, the Bipartisan Policy Center has long supported you know, efforts to. Um, adequately increase the, the agency's funding so that it can go towards um, taxpayer services and those in, in enforcement mechanisms that can ensure that folks are, are paying the taxes that they owe. Um, so I do think that, you know, again, though, given the the, the bill, I think, rescinded about $1.4 in the IRS's funding this year, and then um, $10 billion over the um, over the next two years. And so I do think that you know, the agency now will have to strategize as to how it's how it's going to, you know, reprogram existing funding and ensure that taxpayer services don't see an, an impact. But um, you know, it is important. We need we we need to, as you said, Dave, we have to focus on the revenue side of the equation, um, and we need to ensure that our tax that taxpayers know that when they pay their taxes, um, there's a return on that investment. So um, I'm right there with you. How do you feel about the IRS? Well, I think most people, you know, we're not really excited about the IRS in the sense that nobody likes to be audited. But I, th I think the concern is that um, that, you know, small businesses are disproportionately audited. So that is a legitimate concern. Um, 
And then as far as whatever, you know, in politics, the rhetoric can be overblown, but they were advertising jobs for people, for IRS agents to be carrying weapons. And so that is problematic. We know it is enforcing, you know, the long arm of the government that that's, it's concerning. So I, I think that, uh, you know, there is a lot of other programs that I would prioritize cutting in terms of fat and waste um, and uh, the use of government money to fund, I don't know, just as an example, just throwing it out, like the way the Voice of America is run is is uh, bloated and bureaucratic. Um, I mean, they're just, we could have gone down the list. And I think that when, when we talk about the word default, I use the word default, Rachel, a couple of times, I used to rate bonds at Moody's Investor Service. And Moody's is one of the top you know, bond analysts and they rate the US debt. Um, I think it's important to note that when you're talking about defaulting on debt, that's very different than not paying everything. And that I think was lost when people, they were using fear-based rhetoric to say, oh, the US ratings is at risk to pay its debt. It's actually, nope, no, that's not even true at all. Uh, when it comes to your AAA rating, and that's what Fitch Fitch said, oh, we're we, you know the U.S. AAA rating is at risk. When in actuality, it really wasn't because there was never any question of as to whether or not the United States would be able to pay its debt interest servicing. Um, it really was a question of these other bloated bureaucratic programs. In my view, as a conservative, that I think there's there should have been a lot more cuts. And yeah, I, I, I think the IRS should have been cut to some extent. I would have cut other programs a lot more. I would have uh, gone in and made some actual structural reforms to Social Security. There are a lot of things that we could do on that front uh, in terms of uh, there's no reason why wealthy households should should be receiving it. Um, and there are you know such limited controls on, on uh, income caps and things like that. Uh, also, the... That I think there should be a distinguishing uh, factor in terms of retirement age for white collar versus blue collar. I think blue collar should be allowed to retire much earlier um, because it is so much more physically demanding and we don't have that sort of nuance. Um, so I think there are lots of other things in my view that, that could have been done in terms of saving money. But I, I've, I'm curious your take, Rachel, on, on that rhetoric in terms of using the word default. I don't think it was actually being honest with people. So I think it's actually a really excellent point to narrow in on. And, you know, I'll, I'll put the ratings agencies aside for a second because we have, you know, as these debt limit episodes have intensified over the past really decade plus, I think, you know, before 2011, the debt limit was raised or suspended numerous times throughout history by administrations and congresses of both parties on largely bipartisan bases. Um, but really over the past 10 years, it's been when we've intensified these rhetorics and we've, we've now um, seen out of some of these episodes, just you know what that doomsday scenario could look like, right? There's really no operation operating plan, but we do know from um, some internal memorandum that have come to light um, from the 2013 and 2014 debt limit episodes that the Treasury Department could um, technically likely prioritize making of debt servicing our our debt, um, and then kind of following that, that's where the the big question mark is: is how do we of work out a, a system of prioritizations. We saw that conversation of prioritization really um, come up a lot in this this round as to whether or not the Treasury Secretary would just pick and choose among winners and losers and what benefit payments and programs get paid um, in full on time or whether or not you know, she would wait until a full day's revenue came in to, to make a, a full day's payment. Um, but I do think you're right that we have seen that 
the U.S. could likely prioritize its, its debt servicing. So we wouldn't debt necessarily default on our debt, but we would default on our obligations. I'd say what's interesting about what the credit ratings have come out and said is, is um, they have noted specifically, you know, we saw with Fitch and S&P in 2011 when they did downgrade us, um, that uh, they have cited the political brinkmanship surrounding the debt limit as, as a factor. And then also our increasingly um, negative fiscal outlook, the fact that as we've discussed, you know, we're not we're not having those those honest conversations about how to tackle entitlements. Um, we're not talking about revenue raises. We are talking about the fact that our interest payments alone on our debt are going to outpace Medicaid by next year and um, going to be the largest federal, federal expenditure within the next three decades. So that, I think, is an important element that I've seen reflected in a lot of these statements that have come out of the credit rating agencies that I do think that behoove lawmakers to say, OK, you know it. Our, our larger looming fiscal challenge, like put the debt ceiling fights aside. I mean, they're not productive. And and I think that there's a better way that we can deal with a debt limit and de-risk it. But um, we know we need to tackle this, this fiscal challenge. Um, and I think it kind of goes back to what we were, we were discussing, that we, we have to get real about mandatory spending and um, the revenue side of the equation. Well, I would say, first of all, and the credit ratings uh, the credit agencies lost my respect during the financial crisis when they slapped AAA rating on a lot of junk. So I don't really, and, they, and they, I don't think they were ever, really, ever properly, frankly, reprimanded or uh, taken to task for what they did in contributing to the financial crisis of 2008. The other thing I would say for our viewers to understand about what you're saying about interest rates going up, when you have a $30 trillion debt, every 1% increase in interest rates is $300 billion of additional debt service per year. So when you're looking at over 3% increase in the federal funds rate, which is what we have, you're looking at a trillion dollars a year in additional debt. That is how bad things are. And there have been some senators like Bill Cassidy, I give credit, who's been saying, as Kerry mentioned, look, the federal social security trust fund is gonna run out of money in about 10 years. So it's the old AMCO ad, right? You can pay me now or you can pay me a lot more, a lot more later. So until Congress actually shows a little spine, which I have no indication that they're going to do, uh, we're going to be heading down uh, the road towards a fiscal train wreck. And there is going to be some point when people are going to say, you know what, even the United States, you guys have reached the tipping point. Yeah, I mean, I I am cautious, you know, I have to remain optimistic that these types of conversations, look, I, I think we'll, we'll see how the presidential cycle really does kick off. But I do think that there, you know, should be an, an appetite to tackle these programs, you know, immediately following the election, because I, I just do think that, you know, as I said earlier, a vote to not touch them is a vote to cut them. And so um, unless we really do get serious about ensuring that they remain that, that they, we, they remain solvent, then we actually have an opportunity to strengthen them. I mean, look at how much the labor market has changed um, since we last touched Social Security. Look at I mean, folks are living longer than ever. They're choosing you know, some folks are, are choosing to work longer as well. And so I, I do think that there just really is an opportunity to modernize these programs to ensure that they're there not only for the workers who plan to retire in the next year or next five years, but also you know, their children and their children's children. Math, you know, we, you just don't have the number of workers contributing for the number of retirees. And 
I think, again, as Carrie said, if you means test, wealthy people are not going to need Social Security. You raise the retirement age uh, during the next 75 years, one year every 25 years, with an exception for manual laborers, and then over the next 20 years, you increase the payroll tax 1% for both employers and employees. That is literally 1 20th of 1%, 0.05% a year. If you did just did those three things, you could add another 50, 75 years of solvency. Would it solve the problem? No, but it would definitely give us a lot more time. But sadly, you're not even hearing modest proposals like that, and it's very disheartening. Yeah. Well, I know Rachel's got to head out, but Rachel, it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you for laying it all out for us and, and for our viewers and our listeners. Uh, thanks so much. And, and where can folks find out more about Bipartisan Policy Center? Yeah, please check out all of our work on bipartisanpolicy.org. Um, we have a tremendous amount of materials and research on on the debt limit, on Social Security reform, on Medicare, um, you know, all of these programs that we've, we've discussed and more. So um, always happy to be a resource to your listeners and viewers. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. Rachel, it's been great having you on the show. And that does it for another episode of Practically Political. It's been so great having you. I'm Dave Spencer. And I'm Carrie Sheffield, and we'll catch you next time. Yeah.